Welcome to the Future Church Podcast with Anthony Delaney. If this podcast helps you, forward it to others, give us a review and subscribe today. For additional thoughts and resources, visit anthonydelaney.com. So it's wonderful to be able to welcome Emma Stark onto Future Church, especially seeing as um, Emma is a prophet and uh, is part of Glasgow Prophetic Centre, so very appropriate uh, to be getting prophetic insight as we're looking at Future Church and why would we uh, want to do so without that insight. Uh, I first became aware of Glasgow Prophetic Centre and of uh, Emma's ministry when my wife Zoe began to listen to podcasts and uh, YouTube and various other teachings and was very interested and kept pointing me towards those, when we ourselves were going through a time that I would describe as a real spiritual battle um, here at Ivy. And through that, we ended up in a pretty shell-shocked condition, I think, going up to Glasgow for a, a few days to a conference and just sort of sitting at the back. And then we ended up having a conversation over a coffee, which then became a real um, much needed. I was going to say first aid, but it was actually more like open heart surgery uh, mm-hmm. prayer time that we then had um, with Emma and a bunch of the other guys from the team who really, to use the phrase, read our mail helped us to know that God knew what was going on with us and through us. And it was such a helpful and uh, healing time and directional time. And then subsequently the friendship's grown as uh, they've come down and spent some time with us here at Ivy and uh, also given some uh, great words that have helped us as a, as a church to be able to think well into the future. Um, in the midst of all of these confusing times, to be able to try and get some clarity about what's the Lord saying and what's our next steps and you know, confirmation has been superb. So um, Emma, it's wonderful to have you. Welcome to the Future Church podcast. Thank you. It is great to be with you and very warm greetings from a wintry Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, it's well, Manchester rain is doesn't seem to surprise anybody, but it, we're really doing ourselves proud today. I think it's not stopped at all, so uh, it's uh, nice to be inside. Anyway, <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's these days when we're dog walking that it requires the full knee-high welly boots, and uh, you know the rinsing the mud off yourselves when you come back in from uh, being outside. It's that kind of weather, but I love it. I love the changing seasons. Winter and autumn are my favourite. I love the. I think the biting cold makes you feel alive. Definitely, definitely. So. We, um, so it's good to keep connecting with you guys and to see the things that you're doing on Facebook and in various um, uh, different ways. Um, and anybody who's listening to this, I do encourage you to get uh, to look on Facebook and connect with Glasgow Prophetic Centre. There's daily things that are coming out, um, and from Emma and other members of the team as well. Um, and helping us, I mean, she just used the word seasons to begin to navigate the spiritual seasons that we're going through, which may not, I suppose, always um, tie in with the, the physical seasons that we're going through. Um, but I wonder as we start off, if I could just kind of w- open up with something that perhaps, you know, we have all kinds of different leaders who are, who are connecting to this and from different places and, and different church settings and backgrounds, etc. And for some people, the whole idea of being a prophet might be something that they go, what does that mean? You know, is that something that was just for the, wasn't that just something that was just for Old Testament? Wasn't it Old Testament prophets? And maybe they had some people that were New Testament prophets that were like Agabus who stood up and uh, did that thing, crazy thing, which uh, about tying Paul up and uh, then Paul saying, let me go, I'm going anyway. (laughs) But when did you kind of start to think about prophetic ministry such to the point when you actually began to set to stand effectively in that yourself and and to be able to say this isn't just something that's I believe for the church now but it's it's something for for me it's something that that therefore is through you for us I I would describe prophets um as God's lawyers 
and they uh, are called to be um, the ones who stand on behalf of God and advocate for God. And I think we have this misnomer that prophets are all about future telling or forth telling. I don't actually think you can biblically cite that. Some of what prophets do is sometimes forth telling, but more than, than that, they are saying whatever God wants said in any given situation as God's verbal representative. So sometimes you could describe them like marriage counselors uh, or, or lawyers, but certainly they have a, a job as uh, custodians of the covenant between God and his people. So uh, it's fascinating. It's deeply uncomfortable. You don't um, you know, uh, run into uh, prophesying to be well-liked. Uh, you're usually speaking a message of holiness. You're often uh, 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 afflicting the comfortable uh, in that. So in terms of growing into that role, I mean, I grew up, uh, Anthony, oh boy, it was a very conservative Irish Baptist church. Mm. I come from a long line of Bible teachers who wouldn't really have had anything to do with the Holy Spirit. I mean, we were Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, you know. You know, the Holy Spirit was like, well, who's he? And uh, so I was raised in a rich, biblical, theologically robust, uh, conservative, traditional place, as was my husband. Uh, but I would know things. And I raised in Northern Ireland, as you can hear from the accent, I would know when people were going to die. I would know when a bomb was going to go off, uh, you know, in those days of the IRA and, and the Protestant paramilitaries. And, and my dad, who was the minister, was burying the dead. So I said to him, Dad, Dad, I think that the phone's going to go and it's going to be a bomb here or, or so-and-so is going to be shot. And he would kind of raise one eye in that, how do you know that? Well, I thought everybody knew that. And uh, my dad was very polite. And we wouldn't have known the word prophet or prophecy or revelation. It wouldn't have been on our radar. And it wasn't until I was um, in my late teens and I saw John Wimber prophesy actually in the early 90s. And uh, I was at that point studying uh, my first degree in York in, in the university there. And I remember watching him. He would have been dying, I think, of cancer at that point. I remember him sitting with a throat spray, you know, because mm. uh, his salivary glands had given up. And I remember him knowing things about people and me going, ah, I think I can do that. What is that? You know, and how on earth does that happen? So I then went on a journey in my latter teenage years, early 20s, into what is this Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Does he have a relevance for today? And do we hear the voice of God? And that was my beginning trajectory. So in some senses, the revelation was always present, but the maturity and the understanding came much later on. Yeah. Would that have been in Manchester that John Wimber was? Did he come that over? Was, that was St. Michael the Belfry in York. Oh, we okay. Well, I know he David. came around the same time. Yeah, so. David White was the, the vicar there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, in those Yeah, days. I know David. He's a good yeah, guy. Great guy. Great guy. So, um, okay. I mean, I, it resonates what you're saying. It reminds me of uh, some years ago I met another one uh, who's gone to be with the Lord, uh, John Paul Jackson. Yes, amazing uh, man. Yeah, I remember him saying similarly, when he was brought up, he kind of just thought, you knew something about somebody, yeah. they must know something about you, and all those kind of things. But it was, so there's like this natural, supernatural yes. gift, which, totally. which uh, then needed to be sort of channeled in some way yeah. by the Holy Spirit and to have some sort of growth going on. Because yeah. um, he said, actually, another thing that he, he found early on was he would go into churches and blow places up because <laughs> he would speak... You know, he'd basically say, that guy over there sleeping with that woman over there, and he would, um, you know, um, he would, uh, when he left, there's this sort of trail of destruction around yeah. it. So, again, there's ways in which prophecy can be also can be really useful and helpful. What, what have you learned perhaps also about, you know, what it's not and how people could uh, effectively, you know, how do we do it so that it edifies, I suppose, and what's the... Yes. 
Uh, ooh, good question. I think, you know, when Corinthians talks about the, the words of the prophet being subject to the will of the prophet, just because I know something or see something doesn't mean I get to blurt it out. And I think we are in um, a maturing prophetic movement. So if you look at the teaching movement or the uh, um, uh, preaching movement, we've had Bible colleges for years to go and train men to preach and teach and women also. But we've not had a school or a Bible college of the prophet. And so um, the prophet movement is relatively young um, and its resurgence or its rebirthing was only 40, 50 years ago by Bishop Bill Hammond, who really stepped back into revelatory waters as an anointing, as in the call of God. So we are a relatively young movement. That's not that I'm saying there are immature prophets, but I'm saying we are we are just youthful. And so we are still, I think, in that development uh, within the prophetic zone of how do we best be uh, useful and a blessing to the church and how does the church then best receive us and I think not shooting our mouths off just because we see something is one of the great lessons and I think we should be aiming not to be messy prophets uh, I think prophets by nature are controversial I think when when you know um Ahab is looking at Elijah and says, oh, you troubler of Israel, I am supposed to trouble the waters. So there is an uncomfortable edge to it, but I'm not supposed to leave a, a, a car crash in, in your midst. And I think what I've learned over the years is there's an awful lot of stuff that the prophet does that needs to be off platform. That is for leaders ears only. And that is just maturity and wisdom. Graham Cook would say that it takes 14 years from the call to the office of the prophet uh, till that prophet isn't any way useful to the body of Christ. I would say that's spot on. Mm. So I can cite 14 years for when I was told you have a prophetic office, not just a prophetic gift. You have that governmental Ephesians fivefold prophet call. And I remember going, I think I know that inside, but wow, no, it's exposed, you know. And it, it and of course I was prophesying regularly. I had started Glasgow Prophetic Center, but I remember hitting my 14th year in the office of prophet and suddenly something clicked in me of I think a greater usefulness to God because you have walked out those immature you know that immature decade or that stretching decade where you learn what it is to put the English language on the spirit of God in a way that most blesses people that's a that is a journey and you need mentoring in it. Yeah, so you can't just do that necessarily on your own, and no. uh, it needs the mentoring. Wow, it's interesting, isn't it? That uh, yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying around how there hasn't necessarily been in uh, in churches. Well, you're not even an encouragement to begin to be prophetic because, you know, as you were saying, about you know, coming in at the lower level of just exercising a gift of prophecy in many churches. Uh, that would be seen as a little, um, you know, weird or off to the side or, you know, just for those kind of people and, and not for the benefit of everybody. And, uh, yeah, we, no wonder we, uh, we we struggle sometimes because we, we're cutting out something, as you said, from those Ephesians, that Ephesians 4, yes. um, pick, you know, wholeness of, of, of these different gifts. So, um yeah, you've written a book. Yes. The, well, you've written a couple. The Prophetic Warrior, which I enjoyed reading through, and I suppose that would be a contribution among others that you've brought to help people to be able to grow in the gifting and also perhaps for leaders to understand um, yes. the usefulness of this gift. I mean, not just the usefulness, the, the, yeah. the, the crucial nature of us being a prophetic people. What yeah. would you say, um, you know, would be the sort of some of the key points you want to pull out from us for, for that, from that book? I think we always go back to Amos chapter three. Some, I mean, I think for a prophet, it's a terrifying scripture where it says, surely the sovereign Lord does no good thing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. Now it's, it's, 
kind of a, a verse that makes you want to draw breath because God's saying, hang on a minute. Um, I, as the sovereign Lord with all power and authority, I'm going to in some way bring a limitation to my own work and I won't do something until I've told a prophet. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing or no good thing, depending on your translation, without revealing it to his servant, the prophets. And there is that sense of God saying, I so love the co-laboring. I so love the partnership with people who, as Jeremiah puts it, will stand in my counsel uh, that I won't do some actions on the earth until a prophet has been told. And the prophets, therefore, really become the metronome or the timing uh, of God, uh, because when Peter says, Peter says this, he says, be established in present truth. Great phrase, be established in present truth. Well, what's present truth? And you kind of want to go, well, truth is truth is truth is truth always. But Peter identifies a certain sort of truth, a present truth, a truth that has an emphasis for right now, a truth that is really the focus of God in this epoch of time. And so, for, for example, in the last 20 years, we've had a present truth of the Father heart. It was a truth that we didn't have before that. And so this present truth of the father heart of God has been growing. Well, you need prophets to keep you on what is the present truth? What is the timing of what God is doing? What is the times and seasons, the rhythm of heaven, the pace of heaven? And also that God will withhold action until a prophet has been told. So it's quite weighty, but then I think all of the senior fivefold are weighty in their different ways. We don't have, um, we're not elite or exclusive trumpets as prophets, but that is our portion within the body of Christ to know the present truth, to know the timings and to know what God wants to do. Otherwise his hands are tied behind his back by his own word in Amos. Yeah. Wow. I suppose I think very often we we end up quite passive over um, a truth or a promise or something that we feel God's doing without actually doing the work. We just think, "Oh, right, well, God has promised that something, and so it's it's kind of going to come to pass anyway." Uh, yeah, that's uh, yes. Yeah, really- I, I think as well in it when you look at the fivefold, you know, apostle, prophet, uh, shepherd, and teacher and evangelist. You know, there's so many people who write so eruditely on this. In 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 my approach to it, the shepherd teacher by nature is fairly risk averse. They are into lifelong learning and lifelong nurture. The apostle and prophet is so high paced and high risk that if you don't have that high risk and high pace that the prophet brings to the table, you tend to have conservative, non-pioneering, non-cutting edge churches. And I think when you bar the apostle or you bar the prophet or you seek to limit them, you get a church that very quickly stops having any relevance uh, in uh, the society in which it's placed. Mm. You need the risk takers, which are fundamentally, first and foremost, apostolic and prophetic in orientation, who are those who, you know, have a boldness to them that takes them, uh, you know, like the greats in scripture to preach naked. Not that, you know, God has ever asked us me to do that. Hallelujah. But it's those kind of like, you know, uh, I will go to the king and I will say, you know, let my people go. Mm-hmm. Or I will go to the king and I will say, you've been sleeping with Bathsheba uh, in King David's case or, or Pharaoh and Moses's case, that actually that takes a high risk personality, a high faith, bold personality. And I think that uh, that temperament type hasn't always done well sitting in local church context, but it must learn 
to sit in local church context. And I think that as, as, as prophets, particularly as we travel around the world, and I prefer to teach and preach in apostolically led churches. I have to say the prophets that I work with within the British Isles Council of Prophets, uh, which I lead, and you know, the American context, we would all say, if you go to a shepherd teacher led church, the prophet does not get on so well because you're sometimes too risky and too fast paced that actually you want a good apostle who understands why you speak with the urgency that you speak with. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the, the apostolic leaders also know something often about having taken those arrows themselves yeah. for having done so. And so there's Absolutely. a degree of empathy Absolutely. there. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of Alan Hirsch, who's also yes. at launch this year, but he'd very much say the same thing and that a lot of the yeah. problem of the church now in the Western world anyway is that it has been established really on that shepherd teacher foundation. Yeah. And so, you know, when people, when leaders have been called, it's kind of, can you be nice to people and tell them a bit of about the Bible yeah. in a way that doesn't kind of upset them too much and be a safe pair of hands. But yes. in that it's a false security actually, because yes. it's, not a, it's not a good growth place for anybody. It, it, it's not. And I think part of the other problem we have as prophets within the church, as prophetic people, doesn't you don't have to be a prophet, but as somebody who stewards revelation, whether you're the gift of prophecy or whether you're the office of the prophet, is that for a prophet or for any revelation that is brought, um, it requires uh, a teachable spirit in the recipient and it requires an ability to yield and to submit in the recipient. And um, I think sometimes um, my thought on working with church leaders, uh, as we've done for decades now, is that it's very easy. And I'm a church leader myself. I, I run my own church with my husband. Um, and, uh, you know, so I know that role. We often forget as leaders what it is to be a sheep. Because we think leader, 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 leader. And that's right. The buck stops with us. We must take decisions. And, but we're, we often get out of the habit of following. And that's, that is a conversation to be had among senior leaders, how easily we flick out of the habit of following. And therefore, when a prophet comes along and says, by the way, here's a new strategy, or God wants this looked at, or God wants this changed, we, that can very often be rejected, um, not because it's wrong, but because leadership must remember that it needs to keep a following mindset, not just a leading mindset, mm. because they must follow the voice of God. And I think that's where the clash comes in leaders who accidentally forget what it is to be subject to of the voice of God and to a, an ability to follow. Yeah, so good. So there's there's been a, I mean, I mean, perhaps it's all been from the very best of reasons, but there is there has been in many churches um, a form of government that's been set up that, as you said, perhaps has been predominantly shepherd teacher in in yeah. many settings. Um, um, like where we're at now, we're trying to do that differently. Do you think there should be an intentionality, and how far should it go? Should I, as a leader, be kind of looking around my my, my main leadership team and thinking, right, well, I, I see myself, if I was going to do one of these assessments, it's quite, you know, apostolic and a couple of other bits of that. And then, But do I need to say, right, well, who's the prophet? Who's the yes. evangelist? Who's the shepherd? Yes. Who's the teacher? Or is it more that we kind of have a spirit of those things and there's a number of people who embody them? Do I need to be actually putting effectively names on a team and go, you're going to see it from that perspective and, and please bring it, in your opinion? Do you think it is actually that um, prescriptive, I suppose? Um, I, I actually do, and I'll tell you, I do think it is that prescriptive. I do think you need name titles. I'll tell you why. When I sit with my leadership team and if I have one of the fivefold missing from that core decision-making place who is known as apostle, prophet, shepherd, teacher, evangelist, we make decisions that are not fully reflective of Christ. And I think the problem is that 
And many pastors come to me and we say, we want to bolt on prophecy. We want to tack it on the side. You know, I've got these revelatory people. They're a wee bit difficult because they're a bit risky and they, they, they speak an odd language. They're a bit too mystical for my liking. I can't make head nor tail of what they're saying because it's kind of like I saw in the spirit and I don't like that approach. But can you keep them all happy and, and tack on prophecy somewhere on the side? And uh, they don't say it necessarily quite like that, but that's what they mean. But actually, prophecy is foundational. It's foundational in Ephesians 2 with the with the uh, uh, apostles. It, 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 in other words, it's like baking bread in your home. Uh, the apostolic and the prophetic must make everything smell of revelation and of sending. And so I do think you need named prophets at the decision-making table. Now, in, in our world, we are we are not short of apostles and prophets in Glasgow Prophetic Centre, but we are short maybe of a shepherd. And I tell you what happens is my dad, who is our lead shepherd, will come in and he'll we'll be making to say, oh yes, let's do this, and it's wild and it's bold and it's you know full of risk. And my dad will say, now Emma, um, you got to remember there are sheep, and I'll go sheep. There are sheep, you know. Oh, of course, I've got to think about the sheep because that's the default of the shepherd. And so, so if we don't have them all in named places, we don't reflect Christ in our decision making. Now, here's the rub with that. Does the prophet do all the prophesying? No. Does the teacher do all the teaching? No. Does the shepherd do all the nurturing? No, that's ridiculous. What I do is I bring my anointing and the atmosphere that my anointing creates into the room and I give value for the voice of God in every context. And I give value and I give um, a, a shadow of revelation that, that we can all hear God by sharing in that atmosphere. And so we share anointings together that we may all think rightly about nurture or sending or teaching or revelation. So you can't you can't have them as a consultant. You can't have them as a sidebar, any of the disciplines. They must have a valued stake at the table in a named place. And what I find is that people within a congregation, you know, who are so differently wired can go, oh, there's the anointing that, that's most like mine. I have an advocate in leadership. I have somebody who gets me and represents how I see the world in the decisions that those that those leaders, that church takes. I think that's very important. And the way you get mutiny on the bounty in churches, so to speak, or the way you get sheep who start to bite is that sheep do not see what matters to them or the anointing that they can identify with reflected within the leadership team. And you take away that mutinous feeling in church by having named uh, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, evangelists at the decision-making table. So I do think it is as necessary as that. That's really helpful. Yeah, because you can even, like you say, say some people will think, oh, there's no none of you are a pastoral yes so who's going to look after us and you totally know, totally yeah. totally and i think they they then replicate within their specialization see one of the one of the, the great issues for me we wish that the bible said more about church structure uh, we wish it we wish the bible said more about church governments and and on how you frame that, that that we want more of a biblical scaffolding for how we structure our churches um, and the Bible actually is fairly grey on some issues of exactly how you put together your church leadership team. However, I think there are some clues that we, we miss, and that is the chronological order in which scripture was written. So Ephesians, which talks about fivefold, is written first. So the entire church only understood the need for fivefold in places of leadership. It is after that, that you get concepts of elders and deacons. And so elders and deacons are then, you know, chronologically fitted into a fivefold structure. We have elders and deacons and we're trying to fit a fivefold structure into that. We're, go we're doing it in the wrong order. And so my sense is, you know, Ephesians first, you get your fivefold leaders in place. You then get 
elders in the prophetic and deacons in the prophetic and elders in the apostolic and deacons in the apostolic. And, and that order of scripture really matters for how we restructure our churches. Mm, it's really good. Really good. I've not even thought of that before. Yeah, I can see that makes a lot of sense when you're trying to retrofit something. Um, uh-huh. It wasn't, it was meant to be built in. Yes. So you talked there just in one of the things just to go back on about kind of mystical language and how this yeah. can sometimes people can uh, you know be weirded out by that and yeah I know that you've recently spoken to us as Ivy and and said we shouldn't shy away from um you know using the language of the bible in ways that you know because we're so effectively you know wanting to be culturally sensitive so i mean for i mean for an for instance you say i mean i could i might t- want to talk about how these days there's such oppression and darkness and uh, people are feeling kind of under the thumb and that and it might even go so far as to say that there's you know it's like um there's you know real things that are binding people up and keeping them trapped in fear etc but um, even though the bible might talk about de- demons and spirits I, I might think i don't want to have people freaked out by that um yeah. And yet, you know, what, do you think we lose something by doing that? What, what, yes. So what's massively. the... I mean, massively. I think we got to uh, um, really keep biblical language because biblical language is the language of truth. And we cannot play with that um, too much. So let me give you examples of that. Um I think we need to be able to say a demon is a demon and anybody that I've spoken to be it a hairdresser or a dentist or a shop worker and uh, you know and I've used straightforward biblical language well I think that's a demon that's oppressing you I am so glad you said that they'll say to me I had a feeling about this and actually we discredit the world and uh, from being spiritually alert and spiritually awake on occasions and interested in the spiritual uh, dynamic and they want to know the truth and the number of people who say I think I've got a poltergeist have you ever heard of that yes I have heard of that that's a demon and we're going to deal with that in the name of Jesus and so I would go into my my um uh, one of my children had real problems with maths and had a real a dyscalculia a real number blindness and there was a lot of stress around it and I would go into the teacher and I would say I come in uh you know in prayer when my daughter comes into the school I back her up in prayer and I bind the demon of stress and I lock it in the cupboard at the back of your room and I say that stress that demonic stress and anxiety when she's in your maths class is not allowed to own her now the teacher's you know the teacher's mouth is like what you lock demons in my back cupboard in prayer you know can I go and open my back cupboard you know what's gonna fall out but actually what that provokes is a whole set of conversation about right and wrong and light and darkness and God and Satan and in in dumbing down our language we have robbed the world of the truth that there are two clashing kingdoms Mm -hmm. we've almost muted Satan out of the equation so when you mute Satan out of the equation how do people choose between good and evil if we have kind of uh, thrown the blanket over evil and pretend it doesn't exist because fundamentally we're in a clash of kingdoms so are there times when our mystical language is too much yes of course there are but actually I think we need to come back to honest conversation about that is a demon you know that spirit guide that you find in Reiki that's not a good guide that's actually from a place of darkness and actually you need Jesus Christ who is the top you know boss of the universe and you want to disconnect from that and reconnect to Christ and people go yes oh yes yes you know you have to you have to I think build a case for who Jesus is as the defeater of evil yeah He's the rescuer of you from from darkness and evil. And uh, I have never had a conversation with anybody who has um, not in a non-Christian environment appreciated the honesty of of pitching the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so many aha moments. Oh, that's what's going on in my life. 
Mm. I suppose in many ways, people involved in recovery, but also even if you think about rock stars and people, they're quite happily talk about their demons, you know, they, and totally. all these different kinds of things. And we can totally. we can shy away from that. But then... Um, yeah, I think it's even worse, like glory, Anthony, you know, mm. um, uh, I, I tell you what, I'd, uh, uh, my hairdresser, um, oh, he was telling me a really... It was a dodgy story. I mean, it was really sexually perverse. Mm. And um, my daughter was getting her hair cut at the same time. And his his hairdresser salon, it was foul-mouthed and perverse. And, you know, I thought, what cuts in here? You know, do I say I don't agree with you and then just get into an argument? Do I sit in silence under that, that attitude of spiritual perversion? And I just said to him, oh, listen, let me tell you some stories. I believe in miracles and signs and wonders. And of course, that language is, is it, it jarred him. It shocked him. He, he actually stopped cutting my hair. I believe in miracles, signs and wonders. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that, because you're going to want to hear about some things that Jesus has just done. And I tell him about people being healed from cancer and people with deaf ears that we'd seen that week open. And I just told him what I meant by miracles, signs and wonders, he's like, wow. So he now has a language or a Christian language and an idea of what is possible that he had never come across before. And it cut right through his perversion language because I brought biblical concepts without diluting them into his salon. That's really good. Yeah, we this year at, uh, re, at uh, launch, we're talking about a reframe, and I suppose what you did there in that situation was bring a you know a disconnect from the, where it was going, and and then gave something bigger, you know, that's more yes. important, and that we and part of it too, I suppose, with this is that we. Uh, we re, you know, we say we're going to reframe God and see Him as bigger than our present understanding. One of the the things that Alan talks about in his book Reframation, together with David, the guy who wrote it with him, is you know, I think David did the the Camino de Santiago or whatever it's called that oh, yes. pilgrimage. Spain. Yeah, and yeah. He, he was saying that at the start of the book that all these other people that were journeying it. They were they would talk about spiritual things all day, but and if he said he was a pastor, then they clammed up because they didn't think that he would have anything interesting to say about spiritual yeah. things. And Alan and uh, his wife Debs, they've been over the years many times to uh, Burning Man, and again they yeah. talk about the the intensely spiritual, and we'd put it with a small s <laughs> uh, aspect of that. But there's this yearning, and I I don't think that's just confined to new age. But I know that you've had also in your in your past you've connected yeah. in with with um, people who are searching in all these different ways. And you know what have you kind of learned from that that kind of helped me to be able to have the conversations that I might have with with everybody yeah. with anybody. Yes, I mean, we were we worked in psychic fairs for years, you know, with the witches and the warlocks. And I think when we went in, um, we had major decisions in terms of what we would pitch from our stall. And I could have gone in with any sort of kind of I'll meet you in the middle type language um, a hybrid language of would we offer spiritual readings or um, uh, spiritual words or you know so something that played uh, a little to where they were at and God was so ferocious with me you know he said no you will offer them prophetic words and you will talk about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Why? Because they have a lot of Jesus spirits, a lot of false Jesus spirits. And a lot of them would say, oh, oh, Jesus is my guide. I know him. And I would say, oh, describe what Jesus, your guide looks at. We learned the hard way with this. And they would say, oh, Jesus, he's the one with blood dripping from his really massive, like uh, wolf type incisors. And I'd be thinking, uh, hang on a minute. That's not like a Jesus I know. So we learned very quickly to say Jesus Christ of Nazareth um, you know, in our introducing of Christ uh, and they would go, oh, 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 no, he's the one who's light. 
He's the one who's too high up for me to access. We would get that a lot. You know, uh, I've been told I can't access him. And we would say, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you can access him. And they'd be like, wow, we were told he was out of reach. You know, that was a very common conversation. So we went in with prophetic words um, and Jesus Christ of Nazareth and that unashamed distinction uh, that, you know, we are not like you to our left and our, we are not going to play the game of the language of Satan here. And, but what I would say I learned most in that is because Satan, you know, can work miracles and, uh, you know, you read scriptures about demons who teach, um, we were getting people saved who had already raised the dead and healed the sick uh, in in their local covens, uh, their, their witchcraft gatherings. And of course, you bring them over into the church and the church is like, well, we don't really trust you. Uh, you're not really mature. And of course, they weren't mature. So the only thing you can do for the next seven years is serve the tea and coffee. And, uh, you know, and that that is our approach. And we we think um, uh, about the kingdom of God in um, uh, in, a, in a succession way. I have my time and then you will come after me and you will succeed me. And I'm going to rule the roost and I'm going to do the ministry and then you will politely follow on behind. But the kingdom of God is not a succession plan. It's an expansion plan. And there is room for everybody. And I think that we have got to trust the, the Jesus in people when they find him uh, to be strong and robust. Now, will they meet, need mentoring? Yes. Uh, and will they need discipling? Yes. But I think we shut people down and we accidentally make faith boring and tedious by our limitation of the supernatural in baby Christians. And I think we as leaders must be prepared to be those who clean up messes by by giving freedom and practice spaces for them to utilize the power of God. I think that is vitally important. If you're going to get a power-filled, useful church, you must trust the babes, uh, uh, you know, to make messes and to say, well, you cast out that demon and see how you get on. You heal that sick person. You bring a prophetic word. You bring an interpretation of tongues because I actually think that the world is crying out for demonstration of the kingdom's power. And Paul says it, you know, in the New Testament, I'm so glad that my words were, were I preached the gospel not just with wise words, but with demonstrations of spirit's power. Yeah. Well, how do you deal with scriptures like Mark where it says, and these signs shall follow those who believe? Well, what signs shall follow those who believe? You know, you and I would write it. These signs shall follow those who believe, you know, the sign of being nice to each other, of being servant hearted. And of course, scripture doesn't say that. It says these signs shall follow those who believe they will cast out demons. So as you get saved, the first sign that should follow you is your authority over the demonic. That's biblical. And we've got so tame and so scared and so desiring not to have a mess that we make church dull and we make ourselves uh, tedious um, uh, for anybody who really wants to engage with Jesus, the supernatural king of the universe. Wow, yeah, that just takes me back to hearing Wimber years ago and he said that when he went along to the church and he'd be going along for months and months and they were reading about various things Jesus did and what the apostles did and and he went up to the guy at the end and he said, when do we get to do this stuff? And he said, we don't do this stuff and you know, we read about it. And John Wimber said, you mean I gave up drugs for that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. Actually, what, you, what you're now presenting wasn't, you know, worth me giving my life to or leaving my life for. I think that's yes. so true. Yeah. So what holds me back, I'll be honest about this. I mean, what, I, mean well, I, just, I was thinking, listening to what you were saying and kind of testing my own insecurities over it. And I, yes. and I think sometimes we can be so concerned to present ourselves as mature that we don't present other people as mature. We want to make sure that we don't have the mess 
And so we kind of, we, we say we're protecting them, but actually we're protecting ourselves. I, I, I would agree. And you know, the phrase that we've batted around, a couple of phrases that the prophets have batted around probably for the last two years, the, the phrase new means new, which we all go, yes, new means new. And the other phrase of I'd rather be an amateur uh, in the new than an expert in the old. Mm. And so we're at that point where I think um, we should feel on occasions a little bit like an amateur. And if I feel too uh, much like an expert, I'm probably drinking and stewarding old wine. And, uh, and I think we have to embrace that. Um, uh, and, and actually, being an amateur does not diminish me. It doesn't diminish me. Being childlike does not diminish me. Uh, and, the, and we have these peculiar concepts of what maturity is in the body of Christ. And maturity the wrong maturity in the body of Christ goes a bit like this. I have surrendered my foolish, uh, uh, wild dreams. I have got more stoic. I have lost my idealistic spirit and I have certainly lost any expectation. But, and we think that's maturity. And yet maturity is this continued rabid expectation that puts me out of my comfort zone. I expect you, God, to turn up. And the joy of expectation and the, and the joy of going for it. And actually, even it's almost the joy of looking a fool and giggling together, you know, whenever uh, it, it, it gets, it, you know, because you do it all wrong before you do it all right, don't you? <laughs> That's the joy of learning on the job. You know, I've delivered people of demons. I, I mean, every wrong way round you would care to know before I ever did it right. I prophesied upside down and, and, and slurred and mumbled my words and, you know, uh, struggled to put English to the spirit of God, you know, but that's the glory. That's the glory of God who is the have a go champion. Yeah. And I do think we have a journey to go in killing our pride and finding the wild thrill of have a go in Christ. Come on. Fantastic. Well, Emma, as we start to pull it to a close, I know that another book that you've written is about kind of freedom from fear. And I think that that can be something which is so uh, the atmosphere that we are encouraged to breathe, the, the images we're encouraged to uh, believe. Uh, you know, we are given all the stats, all the figures, all of these different kind of things. And obviously my wife works in the NHS and so I'm kind of concerned about this, uh, you know, the, the, about what's going on. In, but at the same time, I just have this sense that uh, God's still on his throne and he's working things, all things out. And, it, it, you know, it, we, we just got to hold on to him. Um, what's the spirit saying to the churches about um, these, t these times, these trials, these tests that we are now going through? And how do, we, uh, how do we not just survive it, but but actually thrive and uh, in that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I would say into that. I think that we have accidentally fallen into the magnification of Satan, and uh, we um, we don't really do. Oh, magnify the Lord with me! Come and extol His name together from the Psalms. We are really specialists at the magnification of Satan. Oh, doom and gloom is massive. Oh, fear and anxiety or, oh, pandemic is a, is a complete, you know, overwhelming. I cannot, you know, not feel overwhelmed. That is the magnification of Satan. Wow. And I think we have got to come back to pray practically, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my savior. And to pray those magnification of God's scriptures, because when I see what he is doing and I see his size, I can work with what it looks like on planet earth right now. And what I would say in terms of what the prophets are carrying, sort of what I'm carrying is the fact that the Lord is saying this, the chaos must continue. Continue. 
And none of us are high-fiving each other and going, yay, we love that word. The chaos must continue. Why must it continue? This is the word of the Lord. Because the Lord says, it is only in chaos and trial that men bow the knee to seek a savior. And that the Lord is saying that revival and awakening, we are not waiting for it to begin. The Lord actually said to me this, it has well begun. And that people are turning to Christ in chaos, particularly in that digital space, the stats for, you know, the, the millions now following churches online is mind blowing. And we thought that revival and awakening would suit us more. We thought I would be in a church building. I would run to the front. I give my life to, you know, to rededicate my life to Christ. My non-Christian friends would come. I'd feel the waft of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here we are in revival and awakening. And we don't enjoy it as much as we thought. We don't actually even feel we understand it. We thought it would look familiar. But this word of the Lord is this. You are in revival and you You are in awakening, but you are too slow to keep up with what I am doing. And you are talking about future plans rather than bringing them into the now where there is a grace for birthing new things, particularly this church planting movement, which the Lord says it's time to birth it now. It's time for the micro churches now. It is time for the online discussions now. It is you do not have have lots of planning time because revival is here and revival is now because men are turning in this moment in the chaos and the Lord is saying I am the rock and I will not allow anything else to be my rock to be a rock in these days and the Lord is saying over the nations I am the rock I am the security. I am the unchanging one. And I feel that the Lord is stripping and he's stripping us of our wrong dependencies. He's stripping us of our wrong idolatries. And you and I, I think we we like the nurture elements of scripture. Uh, we don't like scripture to shock us. We like scripture to comfort us. And yet God is, is shocking in this moment of time. God is saying, I will have my inheritance. And I think we read, you know, uh, scriptures like Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything and every activity under heaven. And oh, yes, there's a time to live and a time to die. And it's well rehearsed to us. And we know that scripture. But we go to, to verses in that chapter. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain. And so God says in that, look, there's a time where you're going to feel held by me. There's a time where you're going to feel nurtured by me. There's a time where I mend and I embrace, but there are equally valid biblical times where I refrain from embrace and where I don't mend, but I tear. And we are living in the days of uncomfortableness and and the days of God's tearing, where God is saying, work with me and do not become a reminiscent people and do not become a people who want familiarity and allow yourself to be stripped and to feel that uh, uh, weight of my glory breaking in, which is calling you higher out of your wrong dependencies. And so I think when we see it from that bigger picture, we start to go, okay, uh, I can break agreement with the self-absorption that I feel, and I can break agreement with my own desire for um, uh, for for familiarity, because God is saying that chaos a holy chaos and holy shaking is part of what is is so central to revival and awakening. So I think I think that would be my my first thought on the season. I think my second thought is that God is saying to us, look, you've got to build my kingdom and you've got to have a war mindset and a champion mindset to go and build. And we have wanted to be people of influence. I mean, every preacher worth his salt in the last 10 years is preaching and writing about influence. I think we've got obsessed with influence 
in the wrong way. I want to influence, you know, uh, my neighbor. I want to influence, yes, lofty thought, lofty thought. But actually God is saying, no, 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 build. You build and they come. You build the new uh, economic system. You build the new bank. You build the kingdom of God. You, you build the new education system. You build the new theater school. And the world will migrate, you know, to the kingdom of God uh, that is being built on the earth right now. And I think God is saying that is how you transform nations by building what I've asked you to build and it has impact mm-hmm. those are kind of some thoughts wow i've written about five pages there i've been thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool i think it comes back anthony to god saying to us we've not understood the kingdom yeah i think yeah. fundamentally we have not understood what the kingdom of god is mm. and and we want to have proximity we want to have proximity to par and 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 God is saying, hang on a minute, but I tear down the world systems. Yeah. I tear down the systems you want to have proximity to. You know, uh, I I dismantle Babylon. I mean, I t- don't we read the book, the Bible enough to know that Babylon and banking systems and legal systems and, and political systems come under the judgment of God. He utterly destroys them. And we keep wanting proximity. And God is saying, no, 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 you need to build. You need to build my kingdom and the world migrates to it. Uh, and uh, yes, there, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. People do need to go into politics. And they do need to go into ro- robust business. And they do need to, to impact the education system. But actually, they must understand as they touch it that one day it will be destroyed by God. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be very careful that they influence with warfare um, and, and don't become the influenced by the powers of darkness themselves. I hope that makes sense. It's the building. God says, I build, I build my church. I build, I, you know, that that's his mantra when he's, he's in Matthew 16. You must find what you need to build. Mm. Yeah, there's seduction around that whole agenda of influence. As you say, you can kind of think, well, if I can just know that person, get in that place, be in that room, yes. everything. Yes. Whereas actually, yes. it, it, you, you, you know, you could have 10 days of meetings and nothing change, whereas actually, you know. This is it. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, no, that's so good. And, uh, yeah, let's just, uh, maybe I'll pray. Many of you want to pray, if that's okay. Lord, thank you that... Rather than spending 10 days with anybody else, we could just have 10 minutes with you that would change everything, Lord. And, uh, and Lord, you're the King of Kings. And as we've heard, you're the one who is the highest of all the high powers, Lord. And incredibly, wonderfully, we have access to you. We can boldly approach your throne and we can come to you, Lord, whatever our time of need. And thank you that you are sovereign, sovereign over the nation and nations. I pray, Lord, for everybody listening to this podcast now, wherever they're at, Lord, that they will connect with you and hear from you and and hear your call, that your kingdom will come, that we get part, be part of that and to, to rise up. And whenever I'm with them, I always get this uh, that spirit rising up of me to be a, a warrior and to be a champion and to believe that it's still possible, Lord. Uh, that we can uh, fulfill your purposes for our lives in our generation. Lord, there's so much for us yet to do. And uh, Lord, just shake off every spirit of fear, every spirit of impossibility, every word that will come and say, not you, not where you are. But Lord, that there would be a call that would come to people listening right now uh, to be able to connect to your power and your promises and to be able to see them being fulfilled right where you've placed us in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we don't want our dependencies to be on anything other than Christ and Christ alone. Father, we welcome your peeling back, your stripping, uh, your separating us from the things that have brought us uh, unhelpful comfort. Father, we want to find you, the God uh, of all comfort, you, the source, you, the life, you, the center of it all. And so, Father God, we embrace 
the shaking in our own lives. And Father, though we wish we did not need to live in such days, we thank you, Father God, that the chaos continues. We actually choose to say thank you for holy, godly sent chaos. We celebrate that you know what you're doing and we come into gratitude rather than fear. We come into thankfulness rather than worry. And we say, thank you, God, that you know what it takes to turn men to you and nations to their knees. And so, Father, we now say with hands uh, open and hearts uh, uh, supple before you, Father, whatever it looks like, whatever you want to do, we will be on your side and not stand against you by wanting old things back. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Emma. And thanks to everybody listening, and please feel free to share this podcast with the people. If you've not already subscribed, please uh, click subscribe, whatever platform it is. And uh, if you're really nice and kind, and to be honest with you, if you know, if you really want um, to feel better about yourself, don't just feel better about me, then you can write a review and you can tell everybody that you've enjoyed this. <laughs> so, Brilliant. You tell, tell the people. But thank you, Emma Stark, and God bless you uh, from uh, Glasgow Prophetic Centre. I encourage people, please get a hold of Emma's uh, books and materials and connect with them on Facebook. It will do you great as it's done us so good. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for listening to the Future Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, listen back with your team and share it. Further thoughts and resources can be found at anthonydelaney.com.